The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 2, The Constitution. Book 3, The Tuileries, Chapter 4, To Fly or Not to Fly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 4, To Fly or Not to Fly. The truth is, royalism sees itself verging towards sad extremities, nearer and nearer daily. From over the Rhine it comes asserted that the king in his Tuileries is not free. This the poor king may contradict with the official mouth, but in his heart feels often to be undeniable. Civil constitution of the clergy, decree of ejectment against dissidents from it, not even to this latter, though almost his conscience rebels, can he say, nay, but after two months hesitating, signs this also. It was on January 21st of this 1790 that he signed it, to the sorrow of his poor heart yet on another 21st of January, whereby come dissident, ejected priests, unconquerable martyrs, according to some, incurable, chicaning traitors, according to others, and so there has arrived what we once foreshadowed. With religion, or with the cant and echo of religion, all France is rent asunder in a new rupture of continuity, complicating, embittering all the older, to be cured only by stern surgery in La Vendée. Unhappy royalty, unhappy majesty, hereditary representative, representant hereditaire, or however they can name him, of whom much is expected, to whom little is given. Blue National Guards encircle that Tuileries, a Lafayette thin constitutional pedant, clear, thin, inflexible as water turned to thin ice, whom no Queen's heart can love. National Assembly, its pavilion spread where we know, sits nearby, keeping continual hubbub. From without, nothing but Nancy revolts, sack of Castri hotels, Riots and seditions, riots north and south, at Aix, at Douai, at Beaufort, Ousset, Perpignan, at Nîmes, and that incurable Avignon of the Popes, a continual crackling and sputtering of riots from the whole face of France, testifying how electric it grows. Add only the hard winter, the famished strikes of operatives, that continual running base of scarcity, ground tone and basis of all other discords. The plan of royalty, so far as it can be said to have any fixed plan, is still, as ever, that of flying towards the frontiers. In very truth, the only plan of the smallest promise for it. Fly to Bouillet, bristle yourself round with cannon, served by your 40,000 undebauched Germans, summon the National Assembly to follow you, summon what of it is royalist, constitutional, gainable by money, dissolve the rest by grapeshot if need be. Let Jacobinism and revolt with one wild wail fly into infinite space, driven by grapeshot. Thunder over France with the cannon's mouth, commanding, not entreating, that this riot cease, and then to rule afterwards with utmost possible constitutionality, doing justice, loving mercy, being shepherd of this indigent people, not shearer merely, and shepherd similitude. All this, if ye dare, if he dare not, then in heaven's name, go to sleep. Other handsome alternative seems none. Nay, it were perhaps possible with a man to do it. 
For if such inexpressible whirlpool of Babylonish confusions, which our era is, cannot be stilled by man, but only by time and men, a man may moderate its paroxysms, may balance and sway, and keep himself unswallowed on the top of it, as several men and kings in these days do. Much is possible for a man. Men will obey a man that kens and kens, and name him reverently their kenning or king. Did not Charlemagne rule? Consider, too, whether he had smooth times of it, hanging thirty thousand Saxons over the Vesa Bridge at one dread swoop. So, likewise, who knows, but in this same distracted fanatic France the right man may verily exist. An olive-complexioned, taciturn man, for the present lieutenant in the artillery service, who once sat studying mathematics at Brienne. The same who walked in the morning to correct proof-sheets at Dole and enjoyed a frugal breakfast with Monsieur Joly. Such a one is gone, whither also famed General Paoli, his friend, is gone in these very days, to see old scenes in native Corsica, and what democratic good can be done there. Royalty never executes the evasion plan, yet never abandons it, living in variable hope, undecisive till fortune shall decide. In utmost secrecy a brisk correspondence goes on with Bouillet. There is also a plot which emerges more than once for carrying the king to Rouen, plot after plot emerging and submerging like ignace fatui in foul weather which leads no whither. About ten o'clock at night, the hereditary representative in Carré, with the Queen, with Brother Monsieur and Madame, sits playing whisk or whist. Asha Campan enters mysteriously with a message he only half comprehends. How a certain Comte d'Inistal waits anxious in the outer antechamber. National Colonel, Captain of the Watch, for this night is gained over. Post horses ready all the way. Party of noblesse sitting armed, determined. Will His Majesty before midnight consent to go? Profound silence. Campan waiting with upturned ear. Did Your Majesty hear what Campan said? asks the Queen. Yes, I heard, answers Majesty, and plays on. "'Twas a pretty couplet, that of Campan's, hints Monsieur, who at times showed a pleasant wit. Majesty, still unresponsive, plays whisk. "'After all, one must say something to Campan,' remarks the Queen. "'Tell Monsieur Dinis Dal,' said the King, and the Queen puts an emphasis on it, "'that the King cannot consent to be forced away.' I see, said Dennis Dahl, whisking around, piquing himself into flame of irritancy. We have the risk, we are to have all the blame if it fail. And vanishes he and his plot, as will-o'-wisps do. The Queen sat till far in the night, packing jewels, but it came to nothing. In that peaked frame of irritancy, the will-o'-wisp had gone out. Little hope there is in all this. Alas, with whom to fly? Our loyal garde du corps, ever since the insurrection of women, are disbanded, gone to their homes, gone, many of them, across the Rhine, towards Coblentz and exiled princes. Brave Miomandra and brave Tardivay, those faithful too, have received, in nocturnal interview with both majesties, their viaticum of gold louis, of heartfelt thanks from a queen's lips, though unluckily his majesty stood back to fire, not speaking. 
and Dunard dined through the provinces, recounting his breadth escapes, insurrectionary horrors. Great horrors, to be swallowed yet of greater. But on the whole, what a falling off from the old splendour of Versailles. Here in this port Tuileries, a national brewer colonel, sonorous Santerre, parades officially behind Her Majesty's chair. Our high dignitaries all fled over the Rhine, nothing now to be gained at court, but hopes for which life itself must be risked. Obscure, busy men frequent the back stairs with hearsays, wind projects, unfruitful fanfaronades. Young royalists at the Théâtre de Vaudeville sing couplets, if that could do anything. Royalists enough, captains on furlough, burnt-out seigneurs, may likewise be met with in the Café de Valois and at Mayot the restaurateurs. There they fan one another into high loyal glow, drink in such wine as can be procured, confusion to sanscolotism, show purchased dirks of an improved structure, made to order and greatly daring, dine. It is in these places, in these months, that the epithet sans colotte first gets applied to indigent patriotism. In the last age we had Gilbert sans colotte, the indigent poet, destitute of breaches, a mournful destitution, which, however, if twenty million share it, may become more effective than most possessions. Meanwhile, amid this vague, dim whirl of fanfaronades, wind projects, poniards made to order, there does disclose itself one punctum saliens of life and feasibility, the finger of Mirabeau. Mirabeau and the Queen of France have met, have parted with mutual trust. It is strange, secret as the mysteries, but it is indubitable. Mirabeau took horse one evening and rode westward, unattended, to see friend Clavier in that country house of his? Before getting to Clavier's, the much-musing horseman struck aside to a back gate of the garden of St. Cloud. Some Duke d'Arenberg or the like was there to introduce him. The Queen was not far. On a round knoll, Rond-Point, the highest of the garden of St. Cloud, he beheld the Queen's face, spake with her, alone, under the void canopy of night. What an interview! Fateful secret for us, after all searching like the colloquies of the gods. She called him A. Mirabeau. Elsewhere we read that she was charmed with him, the wild submitted titan, as indeed it is among the honourable tokens of this high, ill-fated heart, that no mind of any endowment, no Mirabeau, nay, no Barnave, no Dumouriez, ever came face to face with her, but in spite of all prepossessions, she was forced to recognise it, to draw nigh to it with trust. High imperial heart, with the instinctive attraction towards all that had any height. You know not the Queen, said Mirabeau once in confidence. Her force of mind is prodigious. She is a man for courage. And so, under the void night, on the crown of that knoll, she has spoken with Amirabeau. He has kissed loyally the queenly hand, and said with enthusiasm, Madame, the monarchy is saved. Possible? The foreign powers, mysteriously sounded, gave favourable, guarded response. Bouillet is at Metz, and could find 40,000 sure Germans. With a Mirabeau for head and a Bouillet for hand, something verily is possible, if fate intervene not. But figure under what thousandfold rapages and cloaks of darkness royalty meditating these things must involve itself. 
There are men with tickets of entrance. There are chivalrous consultings, mysterious plottings. Consider also whether, involve as it like, plotting royalty can escape the glance of patriotism, link-sized by the ten thousand fixed on it which see in the dark. Patriotism knows much, knows the dirks made to order and can specify the shops, knows Sieur Motier's legion of mouchard, the tickets of entree and men in black, and how plan of evasion succeeds plan, or may be supposed to succeed it. Then conceive the couplets chanted at the Théâtre de Vaudeville, or worse, the whispers, significant nods of traitors in moustaches. Conceive, on the other hand, the loud cry of alarm that came through the hundred and thirty journals, the Dionysius ear of each of the forty-eight sections, wakeful night and day. Patriotism is patient of much, not patient of all. The Café de Procope has sent, visibly along the streets, a deputation of patriots to expostulate with bad editors by trustful word of mouth, singular to see and hear. The bad editors promise to amend, but do not. Deputations for change of ministry were many, Mayor Bailly joining even the Cordelia Danton in such, and they have prevailed. With what profit? Of quacks, willing or constrained to be quacks, the race is everlasting. Ministers Dupotet and Duterte will have to manage much as Monsieur Latour de Pan and Cisse did. So welters the confused world. But now, beaten on forever by such inextricable contradictory influences and evidences, what is the indigent French patriot in these unhappy days to believe and walk by? Uncertainty all, except that he is wretched, indigent, that a glorious revolution, the wonder of the universe, has hitherto brought neither bread nor peace, being marred by traitors difficult to discover, traitors that dwell in the dark, invisible there, or seen for moments in pallid, dubious twilight, stealthily vanishing thither. Preternatural suspicion once more rules the minds of men. Nobody here, writes Curra of the Annals Patriotique, so early as the 1st of February, can entertain a doubt of the constant obstinate project these people have on foot to get the king away, or of the perpetual succession of manoeuvres they employ for that. Nobody, the watchful mother of patriotism, deputed two members to her daughter at Versailles to examine how the matter looked there. Well, and there, patriotic Curra continues, the report of these two deputies we all heard with our own ears last Saturday. They went with others of Versailles to inspect the king's stables, also the stables of the Wylam Garde du Corps. They found there from seven to eight hundred horses standing always saddled and bridled, ready for the road at a moment's notice. The same deputies, moreover, saw with their own two eyes several royal carriages, which men were even then busy loading with large, well-stuffed luggage-bags, leather cows, as we call them, vaches du queer, the royal arms on the panels almost entirely effaced. Momentous enough. Also, on the same day, the whole mare chaussée, or cavalry police, did assemble with arms, horses and baggage, and disperse again. They want the king over the marches so that Emperor Leopold and the German princes, whose troops are ready, may have a pretext for beginning. This, adds Carra, is the word of the riddle. This is the reason why our fugitive aristocrats are now making levies of men on the frontiers, expecting that, one of these mornings, the executive chief magistrate will be brought over to them and the civil war commence. 
if indeed the executive chief magistrate, bagged, say, in one of these leather cows, were once brought safe over to them. But the strangest thing of all is that patriotism, whether barking at a venture or guided by some instinct of preternatural sagacity, is actually barking aright this time, at something, not at nothing. Bouillet's secret correspondence, since made public, testifies as much. Nay, it is undeniable, visible to all, that Maydames, the king's aunts, are taking steps for departure, asking passports of the ministry, safe conducts of the municipality, which Marat warns all men to beware of. They will carry gold with them, these old bigweens. Nay, they will carry the little dauphin, having nursed a changeling for some time to leave in his stead. Besides, they are as some light substance flung up to show how the wind sits, a kind of proof-kite you fly off to ascertain whether the grand paper-kite evasion of the king may mount. In these alarming circumstances, patriotism is not wanting to itself. Municipality deputes to the king, sections depute to the municipality. A national assembly will soon stir. Meanwhile, behold, on the 19th of February, 1791, Mesdames, quitting Bellevue and Versailles with all privacy, are off towards Rome, seemingly, or one knows not whither. They are not without king's passports, countersigned, and what is more to the purpose, a serviceable escort. The patriotic mayor or mayorlet of the village of Moray tries to detain them, but brisk Louis de Narbonne of the escort, dashed off at hand gallop, returned soon with thirty dragoons and victoriously cut them out. And so the poor ancient women go their way, to the terror of France and Paris, whose nervous excitability has become extreme. Who else would hinder poor old Locke and Grey, now grown so old and fallen into such unexpected circumstances, when gossip itself, turning only on terrors and horrors, is no longer pleasant to the mind, and you cannot get so much as an orthodox confessor in peace, from going what way soever the hope of any solacement might lead them? They go, poor ancient dames, whom the heart were hard that does not pity. They go with palpitations with unmelodious suppressed screechings, all France screeching and cackling in loud unsuppressed terror behind and on both hands of them such mutual suspicion is among men. At Arnay-le-Duc, about halfway to the frontiers, a patriotic municipality and populace again takes courage to stop them. Louis Narbonne must now back to Paris, must consult the National Assembly. National Assembly answers, not without an effort, that Mesdames may go whereupon Paris rises worse than ever, screeching half-distracted. Tuileries and precincts are filled with women and men, while the National Assembly debates this question of questions. Lafayette is needed at night for dispersing them, and the streets are to be illuminated. Commandant Bertier, a Bertier before whom are great things unknown, lies for the present under blockade at Bellevue in Versailles. By no tactics could he get Mesdames luggage stirred from the courts there, Frantic Versailles women come screaming about him. His very troops cut the wagon traces. He retired to the interior, waiting better times. Nay, in these same hours, while Mesdames, hardly cut out from Marais by the sabre's edge, are driving rapidly to foreign parts and not yet stopped at Arnay, their august neighbour, poor Monsieur, at Paris, has dived deep into his cellars of the Luxembourg for shelter, and, according to Montgaillard, can hardly be persuaded up again. 
screeching multitudes environ that Luxembourg of his, drawn thither by report of his departure. But at sight and sound of Monsieur they become crowing multitudes, and escort Madame and him to the Tuileries with vivats. It is a state of nervous excitability such as few nations know. End of Book 3, Chapter 4